chapter 11, verse 45, through the 11th verse of chapter 12. And these are the words of God. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider it that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say in his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the, for the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake alone, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Thus the reading of God's word, let's ask his blessing. Father in heaven, grant us by your mercy understanding and application from this text. Your word is good and true, and is sharper than any two-edged sword. Let it cut us deep, removing unbelief and doubt, and arranging us as an acceptable offering to you in this time of consecration. Do so in the name of your Son, who died for us, even Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, I bring you greetings from uh, our mission church down in Centralia. I was down there last Lord's Day, and we ordained and brought... Uh, Aaron Ventura there to be an elder and, and pastor there of the church. Uh, and, and that church down there is very grateful for the work that, that we've been able to provide for them over the years of their founding, their months, I guess, it's just really been a year and a half or so. And, um, but they, uh, just to let you know, they pray for you regularly, pray for the church up here as well with great thanksgiving and that God would use us here um, as he's using them down there in Lewis County. So greetings from that church to all of you. As we return back to, to the Gospel of John, we're, we've now completed the seven signs of the Book of Signs, culminating in the resurrection of, um, of Lazarus from the dead, or the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And while John tells us, we've said regularly, John tells us that these signs were written down for us so that we might believe. Remember, that's at the end of chapter 20. <coughs> he says, um, these particular signs I've chosen that you might believe and that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, while that's true, that was, that's John's intent, we also continue to see that these signs continue to harden unbelief and opposition to Jesus. When the signs took place, there would be a reaction. John is writing years later, and he's using those signs to now bring forth the gospel and, and cause us to believe the Son of God. But when the signs took place, they caused... A, a very profound differences in terms of the kind of um, the kind of response 
in many ways, the same way that the gospel goes out and causes a great difference of response um, when it's preached. Remember this, in the preface, and remember I always tell you, the first 18 verses of John is the preface by which almost all the subjects are laid out there and then dealt with in great detail throughout the rest of the gospel. In that preface, John writes, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But then it continues, but as many as received him, To them, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And then it makes clear what brings forth that faith, that belief. In verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's nothing in us that makes us able to believe. There's no lineage. There's no will within ourselves. There's no um, intention on our own to come to Christ. But God is the one who brings faith. God is the one who brings faith. So you keep that in mind, and then you take a look at what's going on here in the passage before us. The raising of Lazarus was an extremely polarizing event that threatened the power and prestige of the chief priests. I believe this is why John... Uh, makes this the culminating um, sign of his seven signs. You, you've, we, in those first 11 chapters, we have handled, um, leading up now to the Passover, we've handled the entire three years of Jesus' ministry in those 11 chapters. The rest of the book handles just the final week of Christ's life. And the, the, the turning point to this is the, is the reaction to the raising of Lazarus just two miles away from Jerusalem. When, when this happens, the, there is a great threat to those Jewish authorities that are in power. Um, the, these Jewish authorities, um, the chief priests, were made up mostly of Sadducees. And you might remember from the argument you see very explicitly in the book of Acts, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, both, um, both a part of what would be the Sanhedrin, but the Sadducees mostly uh, were, were a part of that. They, they were the ones, they were, they were the liberals. The Pharisees were the conservatives. And the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection at all. And here Jesus is raising somebody from the dead, okay? That's, that's not good, a good play when the other guys are in power, um, in, in their face that kind of way, okay? So you have the Sadducees who were resurrection deniers, who had their ecclesiastical courts. They had the power um, to rule over the people under the hand of the Romans at the pleasure of the Roman rulers, so the Romans, after when Rome, as they would take over um, cities and, and countries and peoples, would oftentimes set up puppet governments that, that they would control, but they would allow the people basically to rule themselves within strict confines. And so the, the, Rome has allowed the chief priests to basically rule the area of Jerusalem, Judea, in and, and all of Judea, and they would have rule over it. Herod, they set up as their king, but right alongside would be the chief priest, that the high priest would be actually selected by Rome. Rome would have control over who was going to be sitting uh, as, as the high priest. Well, um, and of course, you're allowed to be there as long as you follow our rules, as long as you submit to uh, Caesar, as long as you submit to the taxes, as long as you submit to our rule over you, we will allow you to govern, in, in one sense, your people. So they begin to see that, that Jesus and, and, the, and the growing crowd around him is going to be a threat to the rule of the Rome, of the Roman Empire. They already see that this is a possibility. And so they're very concerned that if they allow Jesus to continue, they're going to be in trouble with Rome. You see that? This is a, everything has become political now. People want to say that the gospel is not about politics. Well, well the gospel is not about politics in the, in the sense of um, we, we, are, we are proclaiming the gospel for the, for the conversion of souls. Yes and amen. Um, but, but the gospel affects all of mankind's society in all kinds of ways. It changes the way we as people relate to one another. It changes the way we uh, relate as families. It changes the way that we live as governments, as governing authorities over us. And we'll see this in, in just a minute. This is what's going on. So this, this Jesus has now become a problem. And, it, and this problem was becoming more and more political wasn't just somebody that they said was a false teacher and we need, we need to make sure that people are not following him. They now feel threatened that they're going to be put down. 
And as we will consider, really, this is the perennial problem with King Jesus. Over the history of the church, this has been the perennial problem of King Jesus, the threat that King Jesus brings to those in power. Okay, so let's watch and see what happens here. In verse 45, it says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary, you recall that they had followed Mary um, when Mary got up to run and, and go see Jesus, and then they watched with Mary as Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together this council. So um, one Puritan commenting on this passage and and the way the gospel goes says, uh, the same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. The glorious and undeniable miracle of a man dead for four days, raised to life, brought two polarizing reactions. Many of the Jews believed, we saw that in 45, but some went away and reported these things to the Pharisees, who with the chief priests then gathered a council. Their fear was that the people would switch their allegiance from the council to Jesus and thereby jeopardize the favor they had with Rome. If you're not going to keep these people under control, if they're going to claim that they have another king, then we're going to take away the rule that you have over these people. Now, um, as, as, this is, as this goes on, we see that many believed in him and many did not. This, the, they, they all saw the same thing. They saw this miracle. Many of them had seen other miracles that Jesus had done. And they see the miracle and some believe. And even though some see the miracle... They refuse to believe. In fact, they want to see Jesus put down. They are threatened by the fact that Jesus might, might actually have some kind of power. Well, what causes one to believe and one not to believe? We're, we're reminded here, really, that faith is a gift and, and not something that we can muster up. It's not that some of them were better people. It's not that some of them were intel- more intelligent people. Look, if, if intelligence was the measure by which some came to faith and some didn't come to faith, then I wouldn't be a believer, right? Intelligent people would be believers. The smarter, the smarter you were, the more, more likelihood that you'd be a believer. That's not the way it goes. It's not about intellect. It's not about how good you were because we saw, we've seen throughout the gospel of, of wretched, sick, rebellious people um, refusing to believe God. And then, and then Jesus heals, Jesus opens eyes, Jesus draws whomever he chooses to himself by means of the Holy Spirit. It is Christ who grants faith, or I should say it's God that grants faith by the work of the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You should, you should pause for just a moment And give thanks to God that he has granted you faith. Because he doesn't grant faith to everyone. And he's granted you faith. You should pause and just begin just to start there and say, Oh my goodness, God has granted me faith. Oh, thank you, Lord, for the gospel. For the good work of Jesus Christ that I can believe on. But both faith and hardening of unbelief, both of these are the unconditional work of God. This is the... This is the truth of the matter, the hard word of the gospel. While God grants faith through the preaching of the gospel, while God grants faith through the evidence of of miracles, God also uses those same things and hardens hearts. The same God who grants faith also hardens hearts. This is the argument that Paul will, will make in Romans In chapter 9, I'm going to jump right in in verse 14 of Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? Not all Israel is Israel, he says. How come they're not all saved? That's the argument going on. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion, so that it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up. For this very purpose, I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. 
Why did he harden Pharaoh's heart? Makes very clear here. I hardened your heart that my name may be declared in all the earth. God hardened Pharaoh's heart right before Pharaoh's very eyes through Moses, the miracles of God are laid forth. The plagues over Egypt take place. And God over and over and over again uses those plagues, uses those miracles to harden Pharaoh's heart so that his name, so that God's name would be declared. Because, and this is what we have to also get. I wanted you to start by saying thank you for faith that you've been granted to me. Because here's the other thing that you have to realize. We all have to remember None of us, and even all of us, are not the center of the universe. It's not about us. The world and all of its creation is not about you. It is about the declaration of the glory and majesty of Creator God, of Yahweh, of the three persons of the triune God. All of creation, everything exists for the glory of God. And if everything exists for the glory of the sovereign hand of God, then that means the sovereign hand of God orchestrating everything that, he, everything that occurs on this earth ultimately occurs for one reason only, his glory. So you give thanks to God that you believe, and then you tremble before him at his glory and his insurpassable reasons for why he does what he does in terms of the specifics. Because um, it can be so difficult, it can be so difficult for those of us who believe to understand why others will not. It's, um, the, the longer I have been a Christian, as, as God, you know, he washes you. He just, he washes your brain. He washes your soul. You, you begin to understand the world in light of his word more and more and more. And one of the things that, that happens is you start looking at those who don't believe and you, and you have a tendency to think, why? Why? This is so obvious. It, isn't it obvious to you? All of your sins can be forgiven and you know you're a sinner. You know you're selfish. You know that if you stood before a righteous judge, you'd be condemned. Where do you think that condemnation is going to lead? Why in the world? Why do you stay in this? Why do you stay in this mud puddle of, of sin and rebellion? When what is offered to you is a glorious, a glorious ocean of grace. Why, why do you, you? You know that. You have that experience. You have friends, family members. You have uh, acquaintances. You have people that you work with, and you think, it doesn't make any sense. Well, it doesn't make any sense because God has granted you faith. And that's it. It's not because you're smarter. It's, it's not because um, you've read your Bible more. It's not because you have all the answers because God gave you something that you, d- you didn't have. And God, in his supreme wisdom, has not granted faith to everyone. That's what's going on. A whole miracle is laid out before people. A man who's been dead four days is raised from the dead. And you see with your own eyes that that man, that man right there, he did that. His name is Jesus, and he claims to be the Son of God. And there's been years of of all this talk about his miracles. He's got this great following, and my decision is to run away from him. And in fact, conspire with others to make sure that he is put down. Makes no sense. It makes no sense. But don't you see, sin and rebellion against God never makes sense. It it never makes sense. You you can't make sense of your sin. Sin is insanity. Sin is is a decision to not follow, not just the ways of God, but but reality as it is, as as God has laid out. This is the, the mysterious ways and workings of God. So the problem, though, is is not so much that they will not believe, but that they cannot believe. God's ways are past finding out. In that argument of Romans 9, 10, and 11, it ends, speaking of God's um, exhaustive sovereignty over all these things, it ends with, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And so with that faith that you just gave thanks for, and that question that you have about why so many don't believe that I, that I know and I love and I pray for, ought to, you ought to find yourself falling humbly before a mighty, merciful God and worshiping him.
maybe in a different way than, than you did. He's, he's not just, he is your good friend. Jesus is your good shepherd. But he is Lord God Almighty as well. And we are not to ever place him in, in, uh, in the dock, as C.S. Lewis writes. You don't place God in the dock and judge him. His word and his ways always are the judge, the law which judges us. So it's not that God has lost control of those who despise him most as well. That, that's the other good news. Th- those that, that, that have decided here in, in this passage that they are not going to believe, it's not as though God has said, I, I wish I could do something, but I can't. That's, that's part of the glorious good news about God's exhaustive sovereignty. At any moment, you have somebody that you're praying for, that you're longing to come to Christ. At any moment, and it seems like they will not come. Why won't they come? What you need to remember is, this is not out of God's hand. God is not up in heaven going, I know, I, I know, I'm with you. I have no idea what to do here. This is, com- this is completely out of my hands. You see, it's, it's really good news. Because, and it drives us, it drives us to continue to proclaim the gospel, to beseech God, to have mercy on somebody by name, and to trust and watch him do his glorious good work in his good time. These are the plots, though, of hardened hearts. The plots of hardened hearts are, we need to put this guy down. No more Jesus, no more public recognition of him, no more ruining our society and our world the way we want to have it. We will put him down. And it goes all the way even to the thoughts of these hardened hearts, verses 49 through 52. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that very year, said to them, you don't know anything. You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Do you understand what he begins to to plot with them, what what his thoughts are? Turns out that those most hell-bent on rebelling against God, destroying Jesus and later his followers and his kingdom, are actually following exactly step-by-step what God has predetermined that they will do, even to what they think. Caiaphas goes on to argue for them, or if we don't do this, the whole nation will perish. And it says in verse 51, though, now this he did not say in his own authority. These were not just his thoughts. But being high priest that year, he was prophesying, <laughs> which is what a high priest could do in, in, in other days. He didn't know he was prophesying, <laughs> but he was right under the hand of God at that very moment as he says these things. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So Caiaphas motivated by political expediency, I've got to keep us in power, argued for a lesser evil to be committed in order to prevent a larger one. Here, the death of Jesus for the sake of the nation. We we need to save the nation from Roman tyranny. We'll do so by, by putting Jesus to death. And we put Jesus to death, we'll save the nation. Even his words, while forsaking, Christ, while forsaking Christ, he prophesied the truth of Christ. Jesus would die for the nation, and far more, but not in the way Caiaphas thought. The irony is thick. John wants us to see the irony. Because remember, after rejecting the true Messiah, the Jews went on to follow many false messiahs who led them in revolt against Rome with the result of the bloody Jewish wars the siege of Jerusalem in 67 AD, and the total destruction of the temple and the people killed off or led off into captivity in 70 AD. Exactly what Caiaphas did not want to happen and he thought could, he could keep from happening happened in just one generation, just as Jesus prophesied would occur. This is the profound wisdom of God's sovereignty over the affairs of men. All things in the final analysis are of God. And this is nowhere more evident than in these actions of wicked men upon the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, first of all, speaking um, uh, of, of Psalm 2, the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. 
the disciples pray, for truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The most, the most heinous and wicked act that ever occurred in the history of mankind was the death of the only innocent one, the, the tortuous death of the most innocent one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that occurred, it occurred by men of their own free will, choosing exactly what they wanted to do and exactly doing what God had ordained before the foundations of the world and written for us in Psalm 2 that they would do. Herod, representing the Jews, Pontius Pilate, representing the Romans, conspired together, representing all of Israel and all of the world, to kill Jesus, which is exactly what God the Father had foreordained would happen for the salvation of the world. The irony is just thick. This is the profound wisdom of God. This, this verse in Acts tells us that this has been decreed in the eternal counsels of the Godhead. And this is the greater fulfillment of that wonderful story of the evil works of Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery. He gets, um, he gets slandered by um, Potiphar's wife, thrown in prison. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong in Joseph's life for years and years and years, only so that eventually he ends up being second in command of the greatest empire in, in the known world at that time, second in command so that he can save those same, brothers and sis, those same brothers and family one day in the midst of a famine. And so uh, when that all occurs at the end of that story, Joseph would say to his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And the history of Christendom continues to attest to this. This is the story of Christianity. This is the story of martyrs. This is the story of persecutions. It is said that the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. Over and over again, the sacrificial giving of oneself for the work of the gospel, even to the, even to the death of the martyr, is used by God to bring the salvation to many. Um, nation after nation, century after century can attest to this kind of work that has been done for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle writes, In days of trouble, believers may rest patiently in the Lord. The very things that at one time seem likely to hurt them, and I'd say, or the cause of Christ, or the cause of the church, shall prove in the end to be for their gain. Nothing gets out of control in the hand of God. Nothing. Not in your little life, your individual life. Not in the life of your family. Not in the life of this city. Not in the, not in the life of this generation. Nothing is outside of the control and the pre-ordered will of God who has in mind the salvation of the world, who has in mind the, the manifest declaration of the gospel kingdom of Jesus Christ over all of this earth. As one man has put it, God draws straight with crooked lines. We cannot fathom or understand his ways as, as he goes about this. Now, um, the next thing John wants to say is that they, they, this, is, uh, this brings about the kind of the end of Jesus' public ministry then. Um, it, it turns out they have, they have decided they're going to put him to death. Verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. Well, the irony is going to continue now. The council agreed to put Jesus to death, and Jesus goes into hiding with his disciples in Ephraim. We, are, we really aren't sure where Ephraim was, but it's close enough to return at Passover, verse 54. Passover is the remembrance, remember, Passover is the remembrance of the angel of death passing over the homes of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. This was the 10th plague, the 10th plague against Egypt. The firstborn are all going to be put to death. But God tells the Hebrews, if you sacrifice a lamb have a lamb, you take his blood and you put it over the doorposts of your house, then when the angel of death passes over, he will pass over and the firstborn in your home will not die. 
That, was, that becomes now the annual celebration of Passover and, and the remembrance of, 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 he, of Israel being brought out of Egypt and granted freedom. So the angel would see the blood of the slain lamb spread over the doorposts of the house, and that sacrifice was sufficient to keep the death plague at bay. But the Jews, here it goes, the Jews have rejected the Lamb of God and command those in Jerusalem to report if they know, know where he is. So verse 57 is basically saying this, we're about to celebrate Passover. The Passover is the blood of the lamb that is going to, that is going to save us from our sins. If anybody sees the lamb of God, I want you to bring him here because we don't want him here. You see that? <laughs> John the Baptist had already said, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. No, we don't want him here ruining our religious services. Keep Jesus out. Keep Jesus out of our religious services. Keep the Lamb of God out of the celebration of the Lamb of God. This is the blindness and stupidity of sin and rebellion. The pilgrims, um, are, we're told, are come early, for the priests require that they obey God's laws of purification prior to Passover. That's why, that's why it's days early that all the pilgrims are showing up. And many of them have to go through purification rites before they can partake at Passover. And that takes several days. So that's why they're there. So, so that their ceremonies, so that when they celebrate Passover, they're not defiled. And again, so while performing the, their ritual purification, they openly plot the defilement that was about to happen. Rituals, and this is important, rituals and liturgies can be received as gifts from God. God grants us directions from his word, how we are to approach him. God grants us directions as, as to the, the kinds of ceremonies that he requires of us and, then, and, and directs through his church how we are to gather before him. These are gifts from God. They are directions from him as to how we are to approach him and to do so with reverence and godly fear, Hebrews 12, and that we are to do so rejoicing with trembling. We don't get to just sit down and decide, so how do we want to approach God? God gives us direction. God gives us a particular way to organize how we gather before him in liturgy. This is a gift from God. Having, having that, we know that we can approach him in faith, confess our sins, consecrate ourselves, be consecrated before him, and then commune with him at his table and be sent out with his commissioning. This is God's way of dealing with us every Lord's Day. It's a gift to us. Learning how to go through that liturgy is like learning how, how to do a glorious dance. And as you go through that liturgy, it allows you to think through that liturgy of the beloved that you're dancing with. We, the bride of Christ, are dancing with Christ in this liturgy. We are celebrating together with Christ in this liturgy before him. Liturgies and ceremonies are a gift from God. But for hardened hearts, they can be outward shows of piety, hiding who they really are hiding their dark hearts of unbelief and treachery. The solution, though, is not to throw out the liturgy. It's to throw out the hard hearts. How many here this morning are just going through the liturgy? Are just playing games to look good before God? Just to look good before God or just to look bef good before others? But whose hearts are in fact full of darkness. The glorious hope of liturgy is even, even there. God meets with people. So you, you came, you were called. If your heart's darkened, you just walked in to go through the motions, check off the box of your little religious duties. And then you're called to confess your sins. But in your dark heart, you, you wondered whether or not that person that you're bitter at really took care of their sins. You've been now, now the word is being proclaimed to you and you're letting it just hit the top of your head and move on while you consider what you, what you might rather be doing with your day right now. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of that, God thunders his word before you. And again, the invitation comes quite strongly by means of his Holy Spirit to say to you, Stop it. Stop with the hypocrisy. Stop fooling yourself. Humble your heart before God now. Hear the good news. Jesus Christ died for even pious hypocrites like you. 
Soften your heart before him. Or rather, let his word do his work in you and soften your heart. Believe, be forgiven of all of that. Freed to join in the dance and enjoy fellowship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Putting everything behind you. Everything. Because all of it is taken care of by the cross. By, by, what, these, by what these hypocrites did to Jesus Christ. What these hypocrites did to Jesus Christ provides you, you hypocrite, you hardened-hearted one, you, you playing around with God one, what these hypocrites did with Jesus Christ just provided you the means and access to be made fully right before God and alive again. As alive as Lazarus was when he's brought out of the tomb dead four days. You dead four days or four months or four years or your entire life. You are being called. Come and live. Come out. Come out of that, come out of that stinky grave and enjoy life in Christ. Liturgies can be glorious gifts for those who have ears to hear. And there it is, again, the gospel for us. Passover comes. Jesus, does, in, in these days of preparation, does not show up. But he returns from Ephraim, and he comes to back, in, back to Bethany, just two miles from Jerusalem. He comes six days before Passover. Listen again in chapter 12. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So in stark contrast of what's going on in Jerusalem, we have these hearts of devotion before Jesus in Bethany. John gives us this other story. Jesus returns to Bethany, and a dinner is thrown for him. If you compare this with the other Gospels, Matthew 26 and Mark 14, it appears that Jesus arrived six days before Passover, and then several days, two or three days um, before the Passover, this meal occurs, and we're told in the other Gospel, the meal occurs at Simon the leper's home, which may be why it, we're mentioned here that Lazarus is actually sitting at the table with Jesus. In a sign of deep devotion, Mary takes a pound of spikenard and anoints the feet of Jesus. She takes what the other gospel writers tells us is a year's wages worth of, of, of perfume, it, super expensive perfume. Uh, most likely, it, it very likely could have been not just that she was wealthy, but maybe this had been even an inheritance given to her, uh, 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 something set aside that she could set aside in case she needed to take care of herself later in life. She takes all of it. And she pours it on, on Christ in, in this passage. We're told that she, he, she anoints his feet. In the other passages, it also says that she anoints his head and body as well. John the Baptist had said that he was unworthy even to tie the sandals of the Messiah. And so even the highest place we can rise cannot even reach the feet of Jesus. This is what you see her in her devotion of anointing her feet, his feet. She's anointing his dirtiest and low, lowest place. John the Baptist would say, I'm not, I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm not even worthy to untie his dirty sandal feet. She wipes the oil with her glory hair, and the room is filled with fragrance. She's representing the bride in, in many ways. In fact, I think John would even be recalling Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. The king is at a table. In fact, in, in the following verses that we'll look at next, look at verse 12 and 13, we see the king is being declared as he comes into Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. She is anointing him to be king. So this pouring out of devotion and an anointing of a king is taking place at the same time. Remember, this is how you declare someone to be king. Remember Samuel making Saul king and then later David being made king. Both times Samuel anoints them with oil. This anointing of oil was part of, uh, of, of declaring someone to be king. Messiah and Christ. Messiah and Christ are just the Hebrew and, uh, and Greek words for anointed one, the anointed king. Jesus is the anointed king. He is being anointed as Messiah king. But Jesus says something different. He says in verse 7, no, um, 
let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. And so he says, she's actually anointing me for my burial. That's also what would happen. After, after someone had died, um, then they would be wrapped uh, in, in cloths and anointed with oil um, because they would be cared, the bodies would be cared for for a time, and this would take care of, this, of the stench of decay, and they, and they would be put into, in the tomb in that way. Well, he's being anointed for the day of burial because Jesus sees his throne will be the cross. His throne will be the cross. He will become king through his anointing to the cross. His anointing to a particular suffering that he is called to would be anointing that would also bring him into his kingship, into his kingdom. And at the exact same time, we also have another picture, and that is Judas sitting at the table, playing upset at the extravagant gift, pretending to be quite upset verses 4 through 6, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. And there went a year's worth of wages that I could have gotten my hands on. Why is this being wasted? I could have had it. What's going on here? His pious concern was just a front for his greed. And Jesus tells him, leave her alone, and then makes this statement, for the poor you have with you always. Later, we will see that, that Judas is going to betray him. But already, Judas must know there's all this talk going on in, in Jerusalem. If you know where he is, come and tell us. Judas will go, and for 30 pieces of silver, will tell them where Jesus is. He will lead them to where, where Jesus is. For the poor you have with you always, I think is a important something just to note. A couple of side notes I want to say. The Bible is clear that we are to care for the poor. All through the scriptures, those who are downtrodden, we are to be the most generous people in caring for the poor around us. But we're not to see relative poverty as a sign that a society has done something wrong. We, and and we, are, we are politically manipulated regularly to see that relative poverty is a sign that we haven't given our fair share, that, we ha- that there's something wrong. But Jesus says, the poor you'll have with you always. The, the way God has created the world, there are going to be rich and poor. There's going to be relative prosperity and relative poverty. It's not going to go away. Second, the other thing is trying to manipulate people to make them feel guilty about the existence of such poverty is a thief's tactic. The way we'll get your money is to manipulate you and make you feel guilty. Christians give out of gratitude, not guilt, because God has given us so much, and not because someone is twisting our arm. So finally, the word gets back to the chief priests that many are going to see Lazarus, possibly more, are now believing in Jesus because of his testimony, and so they plot to put Lazarus to death as well. Remind you, again, as you read, um, as you read 10 and 11, um, that when the Jews are mentioned, it's different than the people, the people of the Jewish people, but, but more and more those in authority, like Nicodemus, maybe others, um, are coming to believe in Christ. This would put more uh, of a threat, more, of, more pressure upon Caiaphas and those who knew they needed to put Jesus down. And so John mentions, um, the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So Caiaphas, who had said, look, all we need to do is kill one and we'll save the nation, already is saying, well, I guess it'll be two then. And that's the way the political power always goes against the threat of Christianity, against that political power. The numbers, the numbers of those who are killed because of their faith has only grown over the course of the history. It, it is said that that the 20th century was the bloodiest century of the martyrs of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. More people were put to death in the 20th century because they named the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and King than all 19 centuries beforehand combined. The 20th century was the bloodiest century against the martyrs um, of of the martyrs for Jesus Christ. And the church still thrives. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But this, and we must see this, this is the politics of unbelief, 
And I believe we need to see this because we live in a day where the politics of unbelief, the politics against Christianity, the politics against God's law are becoming more and more violent in our day. Ever since Jesus came, and especially since the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, the worldwide conquest by the gospel has brought ongoing strife and violence from the established world of unbelief. This is the great antithesis. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are at war before our very eyes. Before our very eyes. And, and, and so Jesus said, Jesus is the one who said, those who are not with me are against me. That, that's it. There's, only, there's really only two There's only really two people groups in this world. There are those who are with Jesus, and there are those who are against Jesus. And that's it. Sure, there's lots of infighting amongst those crowds, but ultimately, that's where it all comes down. That's where the final judgment is going to be brought. Those who are with Jesus and those who are not with Jesus. Most of the time, if Jesus is Lord of your heart, they're fine with that. Jesus can be Lord of your own little heart, and you little foolish Christian want to do all your little religious things, go ahead. He's, they're fine with you if, if Jesus is Lord of your heart. It's when you say that Jesus is Lord of theirs. It's when you say, no, no, Jesus, it's not that just Jesus is Lord of my heart. He's Lord of all of heaven. Oh, and by the way, he's Lord of all the earth as well. Like, like Jesus doesn't want a few hearts of Americans. He wants America, and China, and India, and Brazil, and Canada. He wants it all. He wants it all, and, and the other thing that's, that's very interesting that we must remember is he's already been given it all. He is Lord of the unbelieving hearts. We, we don't, uh, we had elections this week. We don't, we don't, it's not on the ballot. Would you like to make Jesus Lord of the universe? Would you like to make Jesus king? It's not on the ballot. It's, it's, it, and it, and it, didn't, it wouldn't matter if it was on the ballot. Jesus doesn't care. He is king. The, the, the Lord said, the Lord said to, to my Lord, David says, sit at my right hand and I'll make all your enemies a footstool. They're all coming down, all of them. Ask of me, he says in Psalm 2, ask of me and, and I will give you, make the nations your inheritance. And Jesus did. And God gave them to him. They are his. It doesn't matter. But, but in time and space, as the story is playing out, they, the, the enemies of the cross, the enemies of Jesus, are most of the time fine if, if you just keep your religion, your private little thing on the side. The problem is we are told that we may not. We, we are not allowed to live that way with Jesus being just the Lord of our own little hearts. We're told to go and make disciples of the nations. We're told to go and baptize them. We're to, go and we're to go and teach them all that he has commanded, everything that he has commanded. We're to tell them this is the way we are to live. This is the new humanity. This is the way we are now to live. We don't get to keep Jesus in our little hearts. That's not, that, that's not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is with Jesus Christ in your heart, having changed your heart, having transformed you from the inside out to be used by God with and among his people to bring that light to a dark land, to a dark land that doesn't want the light. We do so in the name of Jesus. And so the problem is, is when you say Jesus is Lord of their hearts and their thrones and their powers and their prestige and their riches and their internal, eternal state. What happens? They get mad. They get mad as we rise up and declare such things, and their anger inevitably turns violent. And, and that's, why we see, um, that, that's why we see the state of things simmering up to a boil. It's either Christ or chaos. And chaos wants to keep Christ down. The latest cry against faithful followers, here it is for us today, is that we are Christian nationalists. Have you heard this? You know what? Why is that happening right now? Well, it is because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That's, that's, that's what has brought it on. How dare you tell me what to do with my body? How dare you tell me what, 
you don't get to just impose your religion on everybody, they say. We say you can't kill babies. And we will impose that. We will impose that wherever we can. You mean not kill babies. And they say, no, you bunch of Christian nationalists. They throw that out. And it's intended as a pejorative term. You're Nazis, that's, what, that's what's behind it. You're terrorists. The church really didn't give the name to itself. Um, and, and there's even debate about whether we want to hang on to it. Um, but, but, the, um, but it has been given to us. It has been laid down. Now, if defined to simply mean that we believe that as more and more people come to Christ, they are going to seek to govern themselves according to the laws of God as they should, then we can winsomely agree. Yeah. Look, all law imposes morality. All law always imposes morality. It's never a question of whether law imposes morality. It's whether it's a question of which morality is being imposed. Now, do you want to impose the morality of God or do you want to impose the morality of the devil? Well, of course we want to impose the morality of God. We are pro-life and we are pro-family, as God defines. And we are against sexual and identity perversions, <coughs> not according to our preferences, although they are our preferences, because we've been transformed by Christ, but ultimately because Jesus is the creator God and Lord over all the earth. <coughs> and also, because like Jesus... We love people. These laws are laws of love. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> it's the gospel. The good news is that, is that Jesus died and rose again, and amen. And so living, he now reigns over heaven and earth as king and lord of all. And so living according to his law is just simply gospel living. And it is the way to love people. The Caiaphases and the Judases of our day can plot and steal and betray and kill all they want, and they will. But God is writing this story. He granted you faith. He's shown how he hardens hearts, and he shows how none of it is ever out of the control of his hand, even this day, even this generation, even the situation that we find ourselves in today. This is his story. It's a good story. It's a good story. It's gospel. It's good news. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, have mercy upon us. For our nation, our generation is falling into chaos. Chaos in knowing who we are and rebellion in pretending that we do not know you. Your church is limp with compromise, so begin here, granting her repentance, reformation, and revival. Turn our hearts, each heart here, to full and complete devotion to you. Keep us from lies and hypocrisy and betrayals, and use us to proclaim in word and deed the love of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring life from the dead, to forgive sins, to grant eternal life, and to disciple this world under his care. For we ask it all in the strong name of the one who rules at your right hand, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Stand and respond.